Bonjour, bonjour, and welcome to another episode of EveryoneHatesMarketers.com, the digital marketing podcast for tech marketers who are sick of shady, aggressive marketing. I'm your host, Louis Renier. As I said in the last episode and the episode even before, um, you are more than welcome to send me emails with questions you have or any feedback you have. Uh, my email address is Louis, L-O-U-I-S, at everyonehatesmarketers.com. I answer every single email I receive, even if it takes a few days. So please uh, keep them coming. There are no silly questions. If you want to get in touch with anything related to anything, you can, you can really email me and contact me. So right, in today's episode, we want to talk about what motivates people and understanding what motivates people makes us better marketer. And it's a fact. The demanding and complex modern world we live in has exceeded the capacity of our lower primitive brains to process information. We are living in a very, very complex world and our brain are not necessarily equipped to, to handle it. So in this episode, you're going to learn about the key drivers to human motivation. What make people tick backed by science and not fake news. So my guest today is Suzanne Weinschenk. She's a behavioral scientist, an author, a speaker, a consultant, a mentor. Um, and her key role, really, her key impact in this world is that she's able to understand, predict, and direct human behavior. I'm a big fan of hers. I read many of her books, a few of which I use in presentations to back up what I was saying. So her books include How to Get People to Do Stuff, 100 Things Every Designer Needs to Know About People, 100 Things Every Presenter Needs to Know About People, and Near Web Design, What Makes Them Click. So as I said, in this episode, you're going to find out five drivers that you should know about uh, that explains what motivates human behavior and then how you can use that in your marketing in order to make sure that people do what you would like them to do. So it's a very interesting episode packed with a lot of scientific studies. Uh, so have a listen and let me know what you think. Susan, uh, what a pleasure to have you on the show um, I love behavioral science. Uh, I think it's really the basis of, of good marketing and you are an expert in it. Uh, you literally wrote many books uh, about this particular subject, so I cannot wait to talk to you about it. So before I start and before we start talking about behavioral science in, in more details, I read one of your books, which is The 100 Things Every Designer Need to Know About People. And I read yeah. that, I think, two years ago. And thanks to you, I built this presentation around the five things you didn't know about people. And I presented that in a conference uh, in front of many marketers. And I used many of the facts that you talked about in your book, plus some others from outside. And this presentation was really a success. That's really thanks to you. So I wanted to thank you for that, first of all. Oh, you're very welcome. I'm glad, uh, I'm glad you did that. Yeah, it's it's very popular topic. Like understanding people is very popular, isn't it? And so like what, what I find fascinating about this subject is that we all have a brain, right? We can all agree on that. We all have yep. a brain. Yeah. And yet we have very little clue on how it works, our own brain, <laughs> right? Right. And even sm like even more of a, less of a clue uh, on others, others' brains and how they work. So why is that? 
Oh, why why don't we understand how our own brain works and how other people's brains work? Yeah. Well, you know, first of all, the it, it, and there's kind of three levels because there's there's like just the mechanics of understanding how brains work, right? Our our knowledge about you know neurons and networks and all of that. Uh, you know, the electrical, the chemical. So there's that angle, right? And we're just starting to learn, really learn about that. I mean, we've obviously been exploring it for probably a hundred years or more, but our tools and techniques were so poor and they're still probably, I'm sure 30 years from now, we'll look back and think that what we were doing in the year you know, 2017 was ridiculous. Um, so the tools are getting better. We're trying to understand the mechanics of it. So there's that part. And then you've got just the understanding of yourself, right? And and how your brain works and how your thoughts work and what's going on in there. And then you've got the understanding, as you said, of, you know, other people. And um, it's hard because most of our mental processing occurs unconsciously. And so uh, in terms of understanding our own thought process, our own uh, way our brain works, how, how creativity works, how our problem solving works, most of that is unknown to us. And uh, there is some very interesting research now that's giving us clues and cues as to what's going on and how we react and how we process information. But it's not very, you know, what we might say intuitive, right? Because what we know is the conscious part, but mm-hmm. that's our conscious thoughts. And our unconscious brain works really differently <laughs> than our conscious thought. So it's just it, it's a, it's is such kind of a bizarre thing, isn't it? That we we uh, are walking around with this powerful computer in our brain, and we have no clue what it's doing. And then, of course, because we don't understand what's going on in our own brain, it's really hard to know what's going on in somebody else's. And if and then they don't even know. So mm-hmm. if they try to tell you what's going on in their brain, they don't know either. And that's of course the basis of why under, you know, studying and understanding people and their interactions with each other is so fascinating to me. That's like that's why it's so much fun. If we knew everything, um, it wouldn't be so much fun to study. Yeah, and we wouldn't have marketers uh, <laughs> for sure. No, it's true, isn't it? If we knew exactly. It is. How people reacted to to specific if things. If everybody knew, and then if everybody reacted, you know, logically in exactly the same way, uh, you're right. You know what? I'm sure the job of marketing would be really different, but um, that is not the case. And I'm sure there's at least five years left, uh, and probably a lot more. Yeah, I, I think it's never going <laughs> It's never going to be over. Um, so, like, it reminds me of this saying, I don't remember where I read it, but they say, like, we have the body of um, 10,000 years ago, the humans, uh, what was the, the species that we were, uh, Homo erectus. So we have the body of uh, Homo erectus and the brain of, uh, I don't remember the name, but basically the brain of, of, uh, of the species that were before us hundreds of thousands of years ago. Um, I need to find that um, in order to quote it. Anyway, so you framed that pretty well. Marketers are struggling 
to make people care about what they're trying to sell. They are struggling to understand why certain people do what they do. They're struggling to understand how they can convince people to take certain decisions. Um, and that's even with us spending like millions or even billions on research on human behavior and stuff. So today we're going to try to dig into the what motivates people to take action and some proven ways that people take decisions based on science, not just based on what we think is the right way. So can you tell us, can you tell us a little bit about the basis of that? Like what motivates people to take action and how did we manage to, to get this data? Well, I def, you know, I, I'm going to go back again to this idea of unconscious mental processing, because if you want to understand why people uh, will take an action or why they won't, I think there's basically two things you have to understand. One is that the fact that most mental processing, therefore most decision making is happening unconsciously. And, and that means we have to, and we could talk about that more because it means you have to uh, be a lot simpler and more basic um, in or, in order to grab attention and then in, in order to uh, make it more likely that someone will take action. And then besides that, the other thing is that there is definitely, you know, very particular, I mentioned before the mechanics, and there's very particular areas of the brain that respond to certain things. There are parts, for instance, there's there's a part of the brain, I'll, get, I'll just give you an example so we can get concrete. There's a part of the brain that um, is active when you are making what's called a value-based or goal-based decision. So if you are thinking, you know, should I buy, um, you know, a new, a new laptop now? Should I wait till the end of the year uh, should I get one of those ultra thins? You know, if you're trying to make that kind of decision, you are definitely engaging this part of the brain that, that makes these value-based decisions. But that's not the only kind of decision that people make. So there's another part of the brain that is active when people are making what we would call a habit-based decision. So if you are in the grocery store and you decide to buy some cereal, chances are you're going to walk to the cereal aisle and grab the cereal that you always buy. Uh, there are certain products that we buy and use in, in a very habit-based way. We don't really think about it. We don't really do comparisons. And what's really interesting is that the latest research is showing us that those two parts of the brain cannot be active at the same time. Hmm. So if one is active, the other is silent, <laughs> If one is, and, and vice versa, which means you're either making a value-based decision or a habit decision. And the interesting thing is that the kind of messaging and, and the way you would talk to those two parts of the brain is really different. So if someone normally makes a habit-based decision, right, they mm -hmm. just make it, they're not thinking about it, it's totally unconscious, um, and then you start introducing to them value-based uh, you know, start talking about features and how comparisons and, you know, why they should buy this one. You are essentially turning off the habit based part of their brain and turning on the value based part. And that you may not want to do that. If they normally buy your product out of habit, that may not be a good thing. Mm. Now, if they normally buy another product out of habit, <laughs> your competitor, right? 
then maybe it is a good thing for you to to switch off the habit part. So that you know, the, it can get it can get a little complicated, right? It, but if you understand, you know, the the science behind it, that that will help a lot. And you're making a decision about what's the best way to approach people and when is the best time to approach people. So correct me if I'm wrong, but. Uh, am I correct in assuming that when you take a value-based decision, it's um, more of an active process, right? And a conscious process. And yes. when you do a habit, uh, a when you take a decision based on habit, it's much more of an unconscious part, which, uh, and your brain probably doesn't consume a lot of energy doing this task, right? That's correct. Although there's an interesting twist. So, you know, it's the brain. It can't be sim too simple. So, what you said is correct, except if you if we go back to the value-based part, um, I am making a value-based decision, but what's also feeding into that are some unconscious things like what is my self-story, how do I view myself? So, for instance, if we go back to the computer example, if, if I if I think of myself as someone who's very tech-savvy, uh, I, I always have the latest gadgets, right? I may not be consciously aware that that's my self-story, but that will influence how I filter the conscious value-based information you're feeding me, mm. right? So is the message that you're feeding me as I'm comparing these products, are you, are you giving me information in which this particular model seems like you know, the, the latest thing, the thing that someone who, who uh, uh, likes to, you know, be the first one on the block to own, it, it, do I get the, the information from you that that's this model over here? And, but that might be happening unconsciously. So they both do, it, it, anything you do involves the unconscious. You just have to assume that. But with the value-based decision, there's both the unconscious and the conscious. With the habit, it really is primarily unconscious. So how does one build models like this on uh, this like unconscious level? What, what do you mean? How do they build models? You I mean, mean if you, if, like, yeah, go it, ahead. It happens in a subconscious level that you have certain models in your head of the person you are, or the person you want to be. Yeah. Like, how how is it built? Is it built from education? Is it built from from birth? From like the, your DNA? Is it built from the friends you have and the friends, the the, the connections you have? What's the influence? Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> okay, everything. Everything, everything, and it and it can change too, right? You can self stories are 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 really really powerful and you can your self story can change now interestingly your self story can change unconsciously you're not aware that it has changed um and you can also consciously change your self story uh you can actually make a decision and say you know uh instead of being someone who is you know, always behind on technology or instead of being someone who, um, is, um, uh, always late, always late. I'm go I'm going to choose to, to change this and, and you can do that. And I, and, and then there's things you can do to make that change easier. In fact, there's some wonderful research by, um, a guy named Timothy Wilson, 
who wrote a book called Redirect, and I love that book, and it's all about the power of these self-stories, and this is based on research he's done and, and research by many others. And, you know, based, I think he has comes to this conclusion, and I definitely have come to it from reading his material, that if you want to get long-term behavior change, the only way to do that is if someone changes their self-story. Because otherwise, the you know, they'll change their behavior, but if their self-story goes against that, they'll eventually revert to whatever their self-story is. So let's take a concrete example. I want to become a better writer, and I've been writing every day for the last two months in order to get better at it. And my self-story is starting to become, I'm actually a good writer. And I start to believe that I, I can be a good writer. And basically what you're saying is that if my story, my self-story, what I tell myself, what I truly believe in is that I am a great writer, it's much more likely that I will in the uh, that I will stick to writing in the next few months or even years. Right. I mean, it's not, obviously it's not magic, right? You don't yes. just say one day I'm going to be a great writer and then don't do anything about it and, and just poof, you're a great writer, right? You said you've been writing every day, right? You have to go do all the other things with it. But if you didn't decide, you know, hey, I'm going to change my story and I'm going to be a great writer, um, then it's likely, you know, you wouldn't stick with it, right? That there'd always be, if you still have the self-story of I'm just not someone who can write, that's going to just stick with you. And no matter what you do, you won't do it enough. You won't give it your all. You'll self-sabotage yourself because, you know, you have that self-story in you that says, I'm not a great writer. That's a fantastic topic. And I, I, we could get into that in more details for the full episode. But what I wanted to dig into uh, today was the drivers of human motivation. So why do people do things? So you wrote this book called The Seven Basic Drivers of Human Motivation. Can you tell us what are those seven drivers? Yeah, yeah. So we've been talking about one of them because one of them is stories. Okay. And there's actually two parts to, to stories. One is these self-stories we've been talking about. But the other thing is also just the idea that we are very, we process information best in story format. So uh, we're very, if you're trying to communicate with someone, Tell a story. That's the best way to communicate. So stories is one of them. Sorry to cut so, you. I I, I, yeah. I don't want to do that, but it's really important for marketers listening. We talked about that in a, a lot of episodes. We basically said, uh, don't do spreadsheets. Uh, instead, <laughs> tell stories. It's true. Always tell isn't stories. It? Always. You can always throw in some numbers, you know. Uh, but to 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 illustrate the principles after the story. Um, yeah, it's just, it's honestly the best way our brain processes information. Your brain can't tell the difference between you having an experience and you having a pretend experience through a story. So when you listen to a story or you watch a little video clip of a story and, and it's well done, and we can even, we could even talk about what that means because um, there's research on that in terms of the chemicals the brain chemicals that are released um, when a story goes through certain a certain arc. You know, you've probably heard of the story arc. Well, there, there's a, 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 um, a 
researcher who has, um, uh, Paul Zak, who has actually measured chemicals in, that are released by the brain during different parts of the story arc. And, and so, you know, we, we know why that a certain story arc is really powerful, but, uh, you're, when you're going, when you're watching a story or listening to a story, your brain actually thinks you're the character and you're having the experience. So it's a very uh, visceral, real experience. So yes, stories, uh, very, very important, very powerful if you want to get your message across. And this is why, this is why it's so important as marketers for marketers. Like that's such a powerful statement. And I think we need to repeat it. When you tell a story to somebody else, when you write an email telling a story, when you tell the story of your company, when you start your blog post with a story, people will read it and think it's their own story. They will act like their brain will think that it's their own story and therefore they will be engaged. They will experience it. That's such a powerful statement. And perhaps you can drill into that a little bit more. You said, you mentioned the story arc. So can you, can you explain a bit more of how, what it consists of? Yeah. You know, this was, I, I find this so interesting, the history of this, because there was this guy named, um, Gustav Freytag, which I'm probably not pronouncing correctly. And, uh, in, in like 1880, uh, this is a long time ago, he analyzed like the great stories, you know, from uh, up to that point and then going all the way back, you know, to Greek tragedies and that kind of thing. And and he was the first one to start talking about this idea of a story arc. And what he did was he analyzed all the best stories and found that they had kind of a similar flow. So they start with setting the stage, like having a context, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, here's the situation, here's the scene. Then they introduce an, an, uh, an actor, right? They introduce the main character, which can be either a good guy or a bad guy, right? Protagonist or antagonist, someone you're going to root for, or someone you're going to hope fails, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but you introduce this character. Now, the character then uh, right away after you've got you've got the scene, you've got the character. The next part of the and that's why it's called the arc because it, it now goes up. There has to be some kind of conflict, some kind of tension right away, um, where there's a there's a problem, you know. And for if it's a if it's a protagonist, someone you're rooting for, you know, then it, it's a it's a problem you want that person to solve. If it's an antagonist, it, it you know it's a bad guy and he's doing something really bad, right? So you you introduce that tension, and then then you have to you know you have to let that go for a little while, but not too long, because then you have to introduce uh, you know then you have to get to the the crucial uh, turning point, right? Where it all comes to a head and something's going to happen. You know, either the, the good guy's going to be able to, to, you know, rescue the, the princess or the bad guy's going to, uh, you know, get caught and get killed. I mean, it's got to be that, that moment, uh, when it all comes to a head. And then after that, it, you have this downward curve of the arc where, um, Every, all the loose ends get tied up, and then you have what what Gustav called denouement or resolution, where it's it all comes to a close, and you know that's like 
the the arc of the story. And you, of course, it makes it sound very simple. But then there's the, you know, how fast, how fast do you raise the tension? Right. How long do you let it go? And and these are the things that can make a story. We've all, I think, heard someone tell a story in which they go on and on and on and on. And, mm-hmm. and you're like, OK, now it's getting boring. Right. So you've got to be able to uh, uh, play with the story so that you can get that arc right. And um, I mean, this is what Paul's acted was what he found was that when you have that rising tension, your brain releases cortisol, um, which is that a chemical that gets you ready. You, you may have heard of it as the fight or flight. Mm-hmm. You get ready to either fight or run away so that it's there's tension, there's stress. And um, that stress is going to grab your attention. And so that's why you're paying such close attention. You want to know, wait a minute, what's happening? What's happening? And you're actually gearing up as though you were the the person in the story. At the top, um, when uh, you know it comes to a head, if this is a character that, um, well, probably either way, but you, especially if it's a character that you like, you're going to release oxytocin, and that's um, a bonding chemical and that makes you feel empathy so you're either going to feel empathy for the main main hero or you're going to feel empathy for the victims that the bad guy is doing things to and this keeps you engaged in the story and it makes you care so now you are emotionally connected to the people in the story so um you know these are the the uh, uh, and then and then on the way down uh, after that oxytocin, you release dopamine. And dopamine is an interesting chemical. Most people think of it as a reward chemical, but it's actually anticipation. Uh, it makes you uh, want to uh, know what's going to happen next. It make, keeps you curious and it actually makes you take action. So um, it's a it's a really important chemical. So you know th- this is why stories that are well done, right? If they're well done with this arc, uh, you know they grab people, they pull them in, and they get them ready to take action. I, it's it it really is very very powerful, and and uh, it and it you know it can be hard sometimes. I know these things, right? And and I don't even do them. Right. All the time. And sometimes it's just hard. I know when I give presentations, um, I'll often, you know, spend a fair amount of time thinking, wait a minute. okay, like what stories am I going to use and where am I going to use them? And I know I need to do it. Right. But sometimes it's hard to come up with a story that's really good. It's, It's not necessarily an easy thing. It takes efforts. Um, if, if it was easy, everybody would do it, I suppose. Uh, <laughs> but w- what you're telling me reminds me of this book I read recently, and you probably have, uh, have read it or at least heard of it, called Sapiens. Uh, the oh, history. yeah, I right. love that book. So in, in Sapiens, it's basically the full history of mankind from yeah. the apes and us ev- evolving from, from, from them up until today, basically. And there is this part which I remember vividly where they say the difference between us and all of the other animals is not the fact that we can talk and they cannot talk. So dolphins, for example, can talk. Um, There are species uh, that can talk to signal danger. 
there are basically a lot of uh, other species that have languages. He says, the author says, the, the only difference between us, uh, humans, and the rest uh, of, of the animals is the fact that we can talk about stuff that are not real. So we can tell stories. We That's can, right. And this is fascinating because that explains a lot of things around the fire thousands of years ago when, you know, when we had not much to do, uh, we were telling stories to keep ourselves entertained, right? So yes. I'm interested... Do we know why we connect so well with stories? Is there a particular reason uh, why humans connect so well with stories? You know, I don't know. I, I'm uh, as you asked that. I'm thinking about you know any of the research that I've read, and I and I don't know that. I mean, I you know, if you're if you're thinking about an evolutionary perspective, there must be some kind of advantage to uh, processing information in this way. Um, but I'm, I'm not sure exactly what that would be or, you know, what, what would be the alternative, right? Mm. Uh, so I don't know. I don't know. I just know, that, I just know that we definitely do. Right. So that's the first basic driver. Yeah, which, so we got, we got right. six more. Okay, okay. Let's, yeah, but there's no here. time. There's no point rushing. So we can no, go no through. No point rushing. We can go through some of them one. more. All right. So here's another one. Another one is um, the need to belong. So we have a, a, a deep desire to be part of a group, to be part of a tribe. And um, this is also, uh, you know, it has basis in, in biology. There is research um, that just really came out in the, it's been, it's been suspected for a while, but it just came out in the last year or two to show that uh, if you don't have um, enough really good social ties, if you don't feel that you're part of at least one or more groups, um, it you can you will act, your body will actually start to shut down, and you will develop uh, any number of the chronic diseases. So there's an inverse relationship between the quality of your social ties. And your uh, likelihood of uh, dying from diabetes, heart disease, uh, and and uh, other kinds of you know the chronic illnesses that that we have in our civilization. So um, it, it's it's sometimes called failure to thrive syndrome, and and the immu your immune system starts to shut down if you don't have these ties. So we really need to feel connected to other people. And that definitely drives our behavior. And there are a lot of things that we will do in order to uh, become part of a group or remain part of a group. Uh, there's things that we won't do because we feel it will exile us from the group. Um, so, and, and we all have tribes and groups and we usually have more than one, right? We have our family, we have uh, our tribe at work, uh, and we might, uh, again, related to our self-stories, we might think of ourselves as, you know, uh, oh, I'm someone who um, likes to do, uh, you know, I'm part of a cycling group, or, and so I'm part of that tribe. So we have usually more than one tribe. And these social ties are really, really important. So that's a way to motivate people. And, and a lot of this is unconscious. And a lot of this just has to do with the way you word things. Um, uh, for instance, some wonderful research done by Gregory Walton that showed that if you use nouns instead of verbs, it implies 
a group. So what he did is he he would they would call his researchers would call people up and and they would ask them, are you going to vote in the election tomorrow? Or they would say, are you going to be a voter in the election tomorrow? So it was either go to vote or be a voter. And more 11 percent more people voted if he asked the question as be a voter. And his theory is that it, it invokes a group identity. And he did this with not just voting, but all all different kinds of things. So again, you know, largely unconsciously, um, if we feel that by taking a particular action, it means we're part of a group that we want to be part of, um, then that then it's more likely that we'll take that action. So I have two questions for you. Uh, the first one is, what will people, like what are people willing to do to remain in a group? What, what, are, what is the extent of, of this uh, behavior? Oh, well, you know, it depends on the group and depends on the situation. But, um, I, I mean, in, we, we, have, we, we know of cases in history where people will do quite extreme things. I mean, they might kill someone to remain part of a group. I'm not suggesting that that's a good idea. But uh, and, and some groups, you know, you, you, your tie to that group might not be that strong. And it's like, no way, you know, I'm not going to do that. So it depends on the group and how important it is to us um, and, and how many other groups we have. You know, if you've got one group and that's the only group you feel part of, you'll probably do almost anything to, to be, stay part of that group. Uh, if you have many groups and this particular one you don't care that much about, then it might be easy for you to drop it. And you might be willing to do, like to kill someone uh, or to go to extreme extent in order to stay in a group because it's literally a matter of life or death, as you said at the start. It's such a profound behavior uh, for us because uh, biologically speaking, we know that it's, it's needed for our survival. Uh, so that's really interesting. And am I right to say that your self story might change depending on the group you are in. Definitely, those yeah, all of these things, a lot of these things, not not all, but many of these seven drivers are connected and related. So if I have a particular self story, that's going to um, it, it probably uh, sway me to be become part of this group rather than that group, and vice versa, right? If I'm part of a group, that changes my self story. That's fascinating. So how can marketers apply this principle in their daily work? Well, you know, a lot of it has, in terms of the need to belong, a lot of it has to do with just being very careful about how you phrase things. So the, the nouns versus the verbs, you know, letting people know what other people are doing, that whole idea of social validation. I mean, this is why you know, ratings and reviews are so powerful. You know, uh, 5 million people have already viewed this video. Well, I, I'm going to watch it, you know. So uh, making sure that that you are letting people know what other people are doing, if if especially if that's good for your your product. And um, then using uh, using wording that makes them feel that not just that they're buying a product, but that they, they are joining this group of people who, and then you have to fill in the blank. Okay. So that's number two. Uh, what yeah. do you do? The third driver. All right. Let's go to another one. So another one is habits, which we kind of mentioned before. 
Um, and so much behavior is, is is habits, and sometimes you know you may have heard, oh, it's so hard to make a new habit or break an, a bad habit, but it's actually very very easy to create a habit because we all have hundreds of them and we don't even remember creating them. So it couldn't be that hard. Um, so, but there's a certain science behind uh, how to get people to, to create a habit. Um, but habits are very powerful. If you can establish a habit that, that uh, your product is part of, um, that might stick for a really long time. And, and that's one of the, you know, and some products are more likely to be related to habits and others are less likely. But um, if you can get that going, you may have that person for a very, very long time. So how, is, how does one create a habit? What's the process involved? So habits, in order for a habit to get created, it, there's, there's a couple things that have to happen. One is that um, the action that that creates the habit or, and maintains it the action that you you know the thing you do with the product has to be really easy and small so um you know it's you you, you can create a habit around um oh let's say you know there's an app on your phone like you know how do you listen to podcasts oh i listen to podcasts with this app so you know it's not a big deal to find a podcast app, install it on your phone and open it, right? I mean, these are not difficult things. They don't take a lot of time. They don't, they don't require a lot of skill or special knowledge, right? So uh, in order to um, create a habit, the actions have to be fairly easy and fairly fast. So that's one thing. Um, another thing is, uh, we know from the research and, and anybody, I don't know if you studied psychology in college, but anyone who took a basic psychology course might remember Ivan Pavlov and classical conditioning and his research on dogs and saliva and that kind of thing. So what we know is that when there are visual or auditory cues, that will uh, cause a habit to be created. So for instance, I mean, most of us have a, have a habit that when, uh, uh, a notification pops up on our screen and our computer, uh, we look at it and we click on, you know, Oh, you have a new email. It's really hard to ignore those. Right. Or if your phone makes a noise cause there's a text message has come in, it's really hard to ignore that because you hear the ding or you see something flash. We are very sensitive to auditory or visual cues. So if you can, if, if, if you can attach an auditory visual cue to your product uh, and have that kind of alert or notification, it will make it much easier for using that to become a habit. And then the third thing is, especially if it's unpredictable, interestingly. So again, um, you know, why do we react so quickly when our phones make a noise or a notification appears on our screen? It's because we don't know when it's going to happen. You know, if, it, if, if a notification is always there or if it always shows up at 9 a.m., it's not going to, you know, we may, it may not become habitual that, that we check it. So, um, you know, one of the reasons we go and, and click on, you know, Facebook or LinkedIn or 
any you know uh, Twitter is because we we don't know if a message has come in and we want to find out right because by now we're addicted so uh, those are the things that that make it easier to to have a habit uh, a few a few months ago I was at a stage in my life where I was checking. Twitter, LinkedIn, and any type of uh, notification-based kind of system environment almost every 30 minutes because I was in a, I was just bored, I was just burning out, and I wasn't, I wasn't really happy. And that was kind of my, my habit to, to try to, to get out of it. And it's crazy how addicted I was to those notifications. It's, it's very hard. It's very hard to get out. You have to, you have to really you know, go cold turkey, as they say. I don't know if, if that's a phrase is, that you're yeah. familiar with. But, um, you know, you have to, first of all, if you, so if you want to break a habit, uh, actually, interestingly, the easiest way to break a habit is to install a new habit in its place. Um, and so, uh, and you can do that by connecting the the old cue with a new action. But you, you know, if you want to stop reacting, you know, to Facebook and, and LinkedIn and so on, uh, you have to turn off all notifications, right? So you don't get any more alerts. And then you really have to do what I call a reset. I mean, you have to, for instance, uh, you know, go away somewhere where there is no internet, <laughs> no cell phone signal for a week. Uh, so that you aren't checking anything, right? Uh, and then when you get back, you have to put put in place um, your new habit. So, so for instance, you know, so many people when they the first thing they do when they you know, get in the office or or are having a cup of coffee in the morning is they'll do they'll do that check, right? They'll check Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, um, and so you have to have a new routine. So what is the thing, you know, so I'm not going to sit down with a cup of coffee at the table and my laptop anymore. You know, now what I'm going to do is sit down with my favorite book I'm reading, right? So you have to establish a new routine in order to break the old one. And and that's, that's funny because it's exactly what happened. So uh, a few months ago, uh, I, I took like three or four weeks holidays. I, I didn't check my emails for three weeks. I didn't uh, check LinkedIn, Twitter or anything for three weeks. And exactly as you said, it reset my, my routine. And when I came back, I set up plugins to block sites that I would visit uh, out of habit. And now I'm happy to say I'm free of all of those addictions. And I don't, I, I only check Twitter or LinkedIn once a month. And I schedule posts in advance uh, for the, the episode to go, out, for example. And I feel much more uh, relieved. So anyway, it's not a, a, a therapy session for me or, or for anybody. But <laughs> you, I think the power of habit is, is incredibly uh, powerful. And this is why in marketing, a lot of people will, will, will tell you to start small. Uh, this is why so many marketers are doing lead magnets, even if I don't like this term, basically asking for an email against a guide which is a small commitment. It's a small thing. And then you move on to something bigger and then bigger and then bigger. Um, so this is related to this driver, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. Right. Yep. So that's three drivers. That's, that's three. All that's right. already a lot. Let's, Number let's four. Let's do another one. Let's do um, instincts. So one of the things that drives behavior are just automatic reactions that humans have 
to uh, fear or, or slash danger, um, sex and food. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and you know, this is just the way we are and it's just to keep us surviving. We have a part of our brain, uh, sometimes called the old brain or the reptilian brain, and it's all about keeping us alive. And so we are particularly sensitive to messages that have anything to do with food, anything to do with sex or the implication that we might get sex, and then anything to do with fear or danger. Um, and, and, and there's a, you know, that, 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 that's a whole nother world, right? Fear, uh, fear of loss, um, uh, just getting our, our arousing our, uh, that, that fight or flight with the cortisol. So, um, you know, I, and I always tell people, okay, I'm not saying that this is necessarily a good idea and that you should try and get everyone afraid or, sex crazed or hungry uh but you should know that those things are very very attention getting how do how did the scientists prove that this was the case that fear sex and and uh yeah uh, food yeah i'm just wondering in terms of testing what type of uh yeah so for instance with the um the new uh you know eeg and and um the ways you can measure uh what's what psychologists called arousal which we don't mean just sexual arousal we just mean uh general level of interest um and you can measure that now very easily with eeg you don't have to do the the brain scans you can just put the you probably seen or maybe you've had someone on your show that has talked about uh the technology which now makes it very easy to connect these skull caps up and you can do readings from just the um outermost portions of the brain and you can measure um and that and also respiration your your breathing rate and then galvanic skin response which is measuring minute amounts of sweat and by doing that you can see when people are um getting ready for action when they're aroused when they're interested um pupil dilation is another one and so these are the these are the three things (laughs) that get the most Uh, immediate and strongest response that's that's fascinating and that that really gives me uh, the next topic that I want to talk about which is the the ethics of of such a knowledge but before that yes. we haven't agreed together on this so it's I'm telling you that on the show I'm putting you on the spot but we we've okay. done the four first driver A- anyway so yeah I know now that Food, sex, uh, danger, fear, all this kind of stuff can, can, can uh, entice people to do something I want them to do. So marketers have this knowledge and some marketers might definitely use it against uh, people's will in order to manipulate them or, or, or make them do something they don't necessarily want to do. So where is the line between the two? Like what, what are the ethics of, of behavioral science in general? Yeah, you know, this is such an important question and it's one that... Um, Uh, my colleague and I are are, are working on. Um, we actually, in in our workshops that we teach, we've been starting to to put in uh, questions about ethics, and and he's working on a a uh, a workshop and a talk. He has a talk, and he's working on a workshop just around ethics of, of the of these behavioral science techniques. Um, and 
And I think, you know, and we're having debates with people about, you know, well, how would you measure it and how would you determine whether something is ethical? Um, I think it really, uh, I don't have an answer. I was going to tell you, I'll start there about the ethics of it because we're still working on it. But I think that um, you have to... We we do have a theory that I'm I'm not even going to try and explain because it's complicated and and I probably can't do it justice uh, in a short amount of time. But I'll give you a hint. You look at the uh, potential for damage uh, in um, uh, the average person with with whatever you're doing. Right. So what is the what is the potential that an average person uh, uh, getting this message, uh, interacting with this product um, because they got the message is going to uh, it's going to hurt them. And then you also look at what is the potential for damage to not the average person, but the extreme um, I mean, we can think about, for instance, uh, you know, let's say you have a website where people can go do uh, online gambling, right? So for 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 a lot of people, uh, probably for most people, you know, that would be, you know, they'll waste some time, they'll lose a little bit of money, but it's not going to ruin their life. But there is a small amount of people for who who get addicted easily to gambling. And for them, it, it could ruin their life, right? So you were actually working on a mathematical formula of, of these two questions. What is the potential for damage to the general population? What is the potential for damage to the extremes? Um, and actually, you know, we'd like to come up with a score. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That would be interesting. And, but what, what springs to mind straight away is the, the product itself. So, like, here we are talking about the product itself, like gambling, that kind of stuff, and the damage it can have. But what if, as a marketer, I use kind of shady tactics to promote a good product? Right? Yeah, that's, another, that's the other question. So that's the other part of the equation we're working on. Yeah, I think... Um, I think it's a problem. I do think it's a problem. Uh, and yet, and yet, if you don't do any of these things, there would be no advertising and no marketing. I, I don't know the, you know, I don't know the answer to this. I don't know the answer to this. You know, so you could say, oh, well, it's okay to invoke, you know, to try and get someone to change their self story, but you shouldn't invoke fear or, you know, sex or hunger and it's like well i don't know why not you know like wow is isn't it just as manipulative to try and get them to change their self story you know you're like why is one why is one uh better or worse than another yeah i i I don't know yet but but we're but we are working on it so okay uh, maybe when if i come back on the show we can actually uh Spend some time talking about ethics, yeah. That's something we talked about with a a guest. uh, I mean, we talked about it with many guests, but uh, with Laura Roder, who's the CEO of a a social media company, and she was saying Mm -hmm. the line is is basically don't lie, right? If you start as a marketer, start lying, then this is when 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's there are definitely yeah, there's definitely there are some lines, you know, don't break the law, don't lie. But I think we need to me, that's like, yeah, okay, we got that. We got to draw some other lines (laughs) that aren't as far out as that. Right. So, Susan, I had a lot of other questions to ask you, and I won't have the time to ask you that. But before I, I let you go, I always ask this question at the end of every episode. So outside of all of the books you wrote uh, that I'm obviously going to mention in the show notes and in, uh, that I already mentioned in the intro of this episode, what are the top three resources you would recommend to the listeners? Um, besides, besides my books? Yeah, besides, besides the, your books. Well, let's see. That's a that's a good question. I think um, I love books, so probably I'm going to give you three books rather than you know perhaps a, a podcast and so on. So um, I would definitely say uh, the book Redirect that I mentioned, which is about the whole idea of self stories. I think that that's a a really powerful book and would really help marketers. Uh, of course, all my choices are going to be behavioral science oriented. You mm-hmm. knew that, right? That's fine. Um, uh, I think another one that um, I'm going to recommend is a book by Daniel Kahneman that you may may know of, Thinking Fast and Slow. Do you know that book? Yes. And that's a wonderful book that that covers one of the drivers we didn't get to talk about, which is what I call Tricks of the Mind. Uh, and then let's see, what would be the third one that I'm going to suggest? Um, I guess maybe um, The the uh, Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg, which is another uh, another one of the drivers we talked about. Very interesting. Cool. So just to mention your book again, uh, I'm going to start from 2008 onwards. So Neuro Web Design, 100 Things Every Designer Need to Know About People, a hundred more things every designer needs to know about people, 100 things every presenter needs to know about people, how to get people to do stuff. Uh, and I think that's it. I haven't forgotten any. No, that's good. Uh, but I have to say once again, I, I will mention those books in, in the show notes and all, but th- they are all really interesting. I mean, I love reading about behavioral science in the way you are describing them, which is really easy to understand for anybody and backed up by science, not backed up by what you think is right, which is even more interesting. So once again, uh, Susan, uh, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Thank you. That's it for another episode of everyonehatesmarketers.com. And this is the moment where I tell you to subscribe to our email list. So before you leave and go to another podcast or listen to another episode, I don't treat email lists uh, the way people usually treat their email list. I really treat that as a, as a one-to-one conversation. So I'm going to send you very short and personal emails every two weeks, I would say. We, I'll inform you of guests in advance. I'll share with you my numbers and how many listens we get. And I'll also ask you for your feedback in terms of the questions we can ask future guests. And perhaps I can also... Uh, have you on the show uh, someday so don't be afraid to subscribe I'm not going to spam you and you can always unsubscribe for sure if you wish the second thing we need from you is your harsh and honest feedback we know that this show is not perfect yet and we always uh, can improve so you can send us your email at feedback at everyonehatesmarketers.com good or bad please feel free to send me 
an email. And the last thing I'd like uh, from you is that if you did like the episode, please share it to your friends, your colleagues, or whoever might like it. And also please review it on iTunes or another service that you might use to listen to your podcast. Because if you leave us a five-star review, it means that more people will be likely to listen and we can spread the word quicker. So thank you so much once again and au revoir. And that's it for another episode of everyonehatesmarketers.com. Thank you so much for listening. I'm super, super grateful. I'd love for you to consider subscribing to my daily newsletter, Monday to Friday, called Stand the Fuck Out Daily. I send very short, hopefully interesting, surprising, shocking, entertaining content to help you stand the fuck out. It's at everyonehatesmarketers.com. You can subscribe for free and obviously unsubscribe whenever you want. I'm just going to read a couple of emails that I got recently as a reply. Juma said, your content attacks the mind primarily, which is such a good thing because most of us are skilled at what we do, but we don't have the courage to do it our way. Mark, who just subscribed a couple uh, days before, said, this is my first issue of your newsletter. Love it. Glad I subscribed. Brianna said, I just realized this morning that my email habit is now to one, skim through the list, two, select all unread industry email except yours, three, delete and don't think twice, four, quickly skim yours. Amy said, also loving the new content that's coming from you. It feels really lovely. Candle said, I like your writing a lot. It really resonates. There's so much bullshit out there. It's good to touch the authentic. And Chloe said, where is the I fucking love this email button? Brilliant. I hope you subscribe. You'll be joining more than 14,000 subscribers at this stage, which is crazy. It's the size of a small stadium. Anyway, thank you so much. See you on the other side.